Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it is a pleasure to be able to share the word uh, with you all again today, uh, especially as we celebrate the joy of Pastor Kevin's family uh, with the birth of their daughter, Molly. Um, so while Kevin is taking some time off for these next few weeks, uh, we're going to be venturing off into the Psalms. Uh, and I thought, since we in the past have done, done Psalms 1-3, till three, uh, I might as well just continue and do Psalms 4. Uh, psalm 4 is a short psalm, but I do think that it still contains plenty of things that we could learn from. That we could learn from. So uh, I'm going to start us off by reading through Psalm uh, chapter 4, and then we'll discuss some of the elements within. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David... Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after, after lies? Salah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than, than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So to give an introduction to this psalm, uh, obviously it's from David, as we see in the header. Uh, and from the content of this psalm, we see that it is during a time of distress for David, a time where he is calling out to the Lord for help. Now, there are some different times uh, when um, in David's life where this psalm could, have, could fit in. Like, for example, when David is fleeing from Saul. And even though David had already been uh, uh, declared by Samuel to be the next king, uh, he shows patience and trust uh, in the Lord. And by rather than trying to, to claim the throne for himself, waiting for Saul to no longer be king. Uh, and even though David showed mercy time and time again uh, to Saul, uh, he was still persecuted by him until the time of Saul's death. Um, so it's a possible, possibly that it's possible that this psalm was written uh, during uh, that time, or another uh, chance could be that it was written during the conspiracy of David's son Absalom against David, uh, in which Absalom rose up to try and uh, take the throne for himself. And so that was another time of distress and persecution for David. Uh, it's also possible it could be another time that, that uh, other than those. Um, but we definitely know from reading and understanding the psalm, that the frame of it is written in a time of persecution. Uh, and it helps us understand the plea of David for aid. And so I hope today that we will better understand from reading the psalm and learning about it, uh, God's great love for his people. So starting off with verse one, it says, um, now something interesting is that uh, the Hebrew, uh, the way it does it is, is, is verse one is actually the header and then verse two is, is the next part. So it's uh, when, when working with the Hebrew text, sometimes it can be confusing, but altogether verse one goes like this, uh, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. 
We see the first verse starting off with David appealing to the Lord, asking for help in his time of need. For we know and appeal to God for help because we realize that God is powerful. He can answer our prayers. For if God was not powerful, how could we trust when we call upon him that he would even be able to do something uh, or help us in our prayers? So in appealing to God, we must also recognize that God is strong. He is able. There is nothing that God cannot do. Uh, He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But something also to recognize is that while God is all-powerful, he is also our creator. He is an authority over us. We can call out and ask for help from the Lord, but we can never assume that we are able to give him orders. Uh, God is not subservient to people. Now, there are those out there who might try and teach that God is almost like a genie that you can ask and and maybe rub the lamp properly or something, and he will definitely answer your prayers and, and you will receive what you ask for. But that's not what we see in scripture at all. Uh, I'd like to look at a few texts, the first one being 1 John 5, verses 14 to 15. And it says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. As well as Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, which says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It is good to pray and ask for things. We are called to do this, and yet to hold things with an open hand, saying, if it is your will. For we do not know what we are to pray for perfectly, Uh, But we can trust that the Spirit prays within us in accordance with God's will. And we also, as God's children, have a special right to be able to call out to God for assistance. We even have a boldness in knowing that God does hear our prayers. And though may not respond to them in exactly the same way that we would like or we would think he would, uh, he will in accordance with his will. So turning back to Psalm 4, we see that same boldness in David when he calls upon the Lord to answer his prayer. Now the next thing you'll notice about this verse is how David calls God his righteousness. An important point here is made by David that he recognizes where his righteousness comes from. It isn't some internal aspect of who he is. He knows that it is only God who can justify the ungodly. Just as how Abraham believed in God and it was accredited to him as righteousness, so is David justified by his faith in God. That's right. Even David, who took the wife of Uriah and ordered him to his death, uh, and who also, the same David, Uh, sorry, ordered Uriah to death to cover up his sinful adultery. And it's the same David who took a census of Israel when commanded not to in scripture. David is a sinful man. And yet, by the grace of God, by believing uh, in him, he is justified. What a blessed thought that by simply believing in Jesus, we, who are wretched sinners, may be justified and be uh, restored in our relationship with God. Do not look to yourself for, righteous, uh, for your righteousness, for you will come up wanting, uh, but rather turn to the Lord, uh, the righteous God, who justifies the ungodly, as it says in Romans 4, 5. 
Now, in this verse, David also appeals to the previous help that he has received from the Lord, both to remind himself and to give praise to God, who David, time and time again in the Psalms, calls his deliverer and other synonyms. Now, let's look quickly at uh, Psalm chapter 18, verses 1 to 2, where it says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Matthew, Matthew Henry also has this to say about thinking about upon our past deliverance from the Lord. He says, the experience that we have had of God's goodness to us in enlarging us when we have been in distress is not only a great encouragement to our faith and hope for the future, but a good plea with God in prayer. Thou hast, wilt thou not? For thou art God and changest not. Thy work is perfect. And uh, maybe I'll go off on a slight uh, tangent here for just a second to uh, share that um, uh, as I read through this psalm, I'm, I'm, I'm also presently being encouraged by the Lord for uh, the past few days. I've been a little bit under the weather, uh, and I was hoping, you know, praying that it wouldn't, be, uh, wouldn't affect me too bad for, for today, um, which brought to mind, of course, past times where uh, I was, w- one summer, I was at camp and asked to preach. Uh, and of course, the, the weekend where I was supposed to, where I was going to preach, I developed an ear infection, uh, which was just really unfortunate. And then I, I but I still wanted to preach. I didn't want to give up quite yet. Uh, I, and then I decided for whatever reason during the morning for breakfast to have granola. I don't know if you've ever had an ear infection and tried to eat granola. I don't recommend it. It's a very painful experience. Uh, but I, I, I started eating it and, and was, the chewing was just awful and painful. And I was like, oh, Lord, how am I ever going to, to, to preach and, and, and share your word? Now, I stopped eating the granola, obviously. Um, and, and of course, I, I sought the Lord for help and, and, and deliverance. Uh, and of course, um, I mean, I still had my ear infection, but uh, I was able to share the word and, and, and I wasn't too hampered. Um, when I when I was preaching, so uh, I, even in this moment, as I as I think about my illness, I look into the past and see how God has has helped me and delivered me, and I and I can in my even in my current prayers uh, use that as a as an object of praise and a reminder. Um, sorry for the tangent there. Let me get back into uh, Psalm <laughs> in Psalm four, uh, which has in the last part uh, where David has again uh, appealing to the Lord for help. This time, making it clear when he appeals to God for help that it would only be by the graciousness of God that he would be heard. By the very definition of grace, uh, there is nothing merited within it. David knows that God has no obligation to save him. And yet, because God is gracious, he may show favor to him. And this again reminds us that we cannot force God to do anything. And yet... We can trust in him for our deliverance because he is good and loves his people, as we'll talk about later. Um, We're going to go into verse 2 now. Verse 2 says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Salah. Our next verse, David turns his attention to men. Some, some commentators have taken this to be a reference for the men who would be persecuting David, his enemies. 
And I do believe that to be the primary audience that he is uh, addressing or attending. For who else would be turning David's honor into shame? And yet, there is also truths in here that I think apply to all peoples. For the men who would be persecuting David would not be recognizing the truth of, firstly, who David is, and of course, uh, the faith that he has in the Lord. They revile him, and instead of honoring him as king, they are instead seeking his life. This gives evidence to the reason why David is crying out to the Lord for assistance because of what these men are doing. In being persecuted, David is appealing to the Lord for help. Uh, And so this group here, these these men, uh, will be David's primary audience for the next few verses. But he sets the stage by telling them that they are in the wrong. They aren't righteous and following a righteous cause. They are deceived and conceited. And these men are the very purpose for the psalm being written. And yet, we also see in this verse a general appeal to men. For how often do we as people love vain words uh, when people flatter us? We can love a people pleaser who puffs up our ego. Or even another interesting way of translating this verse is instead of vain words, using the word vanity. Now, let me ask you a question. What is a synonym for vanity? Pride. And how much do people love their pride? Well, let's be honest. There's a whole month built around being prideful. Uh, now, I know it's, it's, a really, it's really easy to point out the errors uh, of our culture around LGBTQ issues. Uh, but when examining this verse, it really sticks out to me how it appears to me that David would be speaking out directly against this movement going on. From a biblical perspective, we see this movement being, on the, uh, found, being built on the foundation of loving vanity and seeking after lies. Think for a second about the amount of groups there are out there uh, that are encouraging LGBTQ lifestyles. And what is their main motto? Be yourself, love who you want to love, be proud of yourself. It's heavily focused on you. And they, even though they state their goal as to make everyone feel accepted and loved, and of course, that's not necessarily a, a bad goal, except for the fact that they encourage people to live in sin. They encourage to feel pride for who you are and your identity, which in reality is just a sinful propensity. And rather than seeking the shame of their deeds, they instead deceive themselves into thinking it's good. And they also encourage others who practice such things, which is something that we read similar in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We also see examples of people loving lies in that though we know that men cannot become women or vice versa, they believe that mutilating their bodies, uh, they somehow become a different person. And one of the most obvious ways this doesn't work is when it comes to allowing so-called women uh, into, or women who are really men, uh, play in women's sports. People know the truth about the physiological differences between men and women, and yet because people are so committed to this foolishness, to believing in this lie, uh, it's now become mean uh, or rude or even evil to ban biological men from, from women's sports, from female sports. Now, I'm sure there are tons of other things that we could think of that we would be able to relate to this verse of, of people seek, uh, loving vanity and seeking lies. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. But again, I would bring to mind that this is nothing new. 
People have always loved vanity or vain words and exchanging the truth for the lie. If you read Romans 1, that's an eternal truth. It's not just a truth for our day and age. And so even David, in his context, is seeing an application of, of people who are loving vanity and seeking lies. And so uh, I don't bring this up to necessarily discourage us, uh, but of course, just to recognize that the, it is the truth that this has always been around. Um, but there is hope, because if we look at verse 3, it says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. In this next verse, despite the fact that believers are still bound to experience troubles in this world, David makes it clear that God's saints are set apart. But let's stop for a second and dissect the meaning of the term godly. Now, the underlying term is a Hebrew word, which is chassid, uh, which shares the same root as another word, chesed. They're very close in, in terms. Um, chesed is a word that, that is often translated as steadfast uh, or loyal love. It's a word we see often used of God and his particular love for his people. It's like the love between uh, a father and his son. It's a, it's a deeply committed, loyal love that God has for his people. And so here, this word, uh, chesed, which is slightly different, uh, which is translated as godly, the question that we have is, who are these people? Well, the meaning of the term is someone who practices uh, the, the relationship of steadfast love with God. It's a different word than the word righteous, uh, which states uh, a legal standing that we would have with God. This word instead is a reference to someone who is being faithful. Um, you see, we would consider a righteous man to be someone who follows uh, the legal moral obligation of the law, at least ex externally, right? Someone, we, someone who didn't steal, lie, cheat, etc. You might look at that person and consider them to be, be righteous because externally uh, they're, they're doing all the things uh, right. Um, but to be chassid means much more than that. Uh, it means to live in a covenant relationship with God. Now, one example, maybe, that can help us understand the difference between righteous and, and this chassid, this godly, uh, would be the difference between the Pharisees, who by all accounts were considered to be externally righteous, right? They followed, they followed the law, even though not properly, because as Jesus came and, and revealed to them their error, uh, but, but the people would have looked at the Pharisees as the, the godly ones, the holy ones, because they knew the law and they followed it, even if they uh, twisted it with their traditions of men. So compare them versus Enoch. Now, if you remember, as we've been going through Genesis, we don't know a lot about Enoch, but what's the description that, that Scripture does give of Enoch? That he walked with God. Now, that is a very intimate description uh, between Enoch and the Lord. So you see, Enoch would be considered chassid, uh, and if uh, because of the him living out that covenant relationship with God. It's not merely an external righteousness. It is, it is living with the Lord. And if we're honest, we know that this is a really high standard. And from a Jewish perspective, they take the meaning of this word and connect it with a form of works righteousness, right? Being saved by the things that you do. But knowing what we know from all of Scripture, including the New Testament, I think that the definition of chassid isn't simply just making someone, make, someone making themselves a good person uh, and loving the Lord as best as they can. I believe that chassid would also refer to every single person in the New Covenant. 
um, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. For the very fact that God grants us new hearts that we are able to be in a proper covenant relationship with him. The only reason we could live a life that is even pleasing to the Lord uh, is is because of of what God has done in us first and foremost. So I'd like to read just a a brief section. And again, I'm going to be reading from Romans 8 here. Uh, Romans 8 uh, verses 2 to 5, which says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit." So it's totally fair to see this word and think of it also as the word saints, right? Those who have faith in the Lord. Because without faith, there is no way that we can be in a right relationship with God. Um, Now, if we had more time, we could actually see plenty of parallels uh, between this psalm and Romans chapter 8. I mean, even the whole discussion about God working all thing, together all things for the good of those who love him, uh, or how nothing can separate us uh, from God's love. But for the sake of the time, we will be focusing mostly on Psalm 4. But I, I hope this helps you better understand that, that this word, chassid, and the, the godly that you see, uh, even though it, it is pronouncing about people who, who walk in right relationship with the Lord, uh, as we understand from the New Testament, it's all because of faith, right? So by having faith in the Lord, you are also considered uh, one of the godly, one of the faithful. So uh, now one other thing, to, in order to understand this verse properly, it's important to notice uh, that it is said in an uh, adversative way to the enemies of David. In response to his enemies who love vanity and seek lies, David is reminding them what God thinks about his saints, that he has set them apart, which means he has a special eye on them. And because the Lord hears his saints, it's also a threat to them that if they persecute David, they will be going up against the Lord himself. What a bold statement made here by David, uh, where he says that the Lord hears when I, notice that in in the verse, where he says, I call him. Again, uh, it's kind of a threat to to those men who are persecuting him. For if they knew that God was going to answer David's plea for help, would they continue persecuting David? Probably not. But let's continue on to the next verse. Verse four, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent, Salah. Now, something I didn't mention before is that verses three to five all begin with second person imperatives. Now, what that means is that David is giving commands to to people, uh, firstly, to know about, uh, sorry, Yes, firstly, to know about God, setting apart the godly in verse three, and then here in this verse, to be angry, and then in the next verse, uh, to offer right sacrifices. So the subject of these commands is obviously the men that he is speaking to in verse two. 
which, as I said previously, would be a dual reference uh, referring both to the individuals who David, uh, who are persecuting David and David is, is speaking to, but also, I think as we can see, there is uh, uh, some, some themes in here that apply in general to mankind. Verse 4 in particular is one of the reasons why I think we should view it as also being related to mankind uh, in general, because this verse, the, the be angry and do not sin, is taken and quoted in the New Testament in order to encourage saints to holy living. So, but let's look firstly at what David would be saying to his enemies with this verse. So after the previous verse of calling them out and describing them as lovers of vanity and seekers of lies, he then asserts that to, that to be going after him will result in God being at David's side. And who would think they have a chance against God? Now, obviously, what would be the reaction of someone hearing the, these words? Maybe in their mind, they have some form of justification as to why David should be persecuted, but David is asking them to reconsider, but in a very bold way. <laughs> Most likely, though, their reaction would be anger, right? Um, for how dare David call us sinners and then call himself godly, right? One of the saints. David anticipates this with this verse in which he tells them how to properly respond to be angry is fine. It is not sinful to be angry. For many times in scripture, we see uh, 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 scripture speaking of God's anger and his wrath. Rather, it is our response with anger that can be sinful. And we as people, when we get angry, we are inclined to sin because it quickens us into making sinful decisions. Like, for example, Moses being angry with the Israelites, grumbling against him and the Lord. And so what is his response? He angrily strikes the rock instead of speaking to it to bring out water as the Lord had commanded to him. Um, but instead of using anger to sin, David gives an alternative. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. What is he meaning by this? Well, instead of reacting with rage and anger to destroy David or to sin in other ways, they should instead reflect and examine themselves. In, the quiet, uh, in our quiet places, in our places of relaxation, that's more where we're likely to be clear-headed. Uh, and he is asking his enemies to consider, is this really the course of action that they want to take? Is David worthy of being persecuted? Or perhaps has his whole endeavor been an error? It's a call for the first part of repentance, recognizing error. So what can we take away from this verse ourselves? Well, something to consider is how destructive anger can be. Uh, earlier, uh, we, we heard from Psalm 37, and I wanted to, to focus our attention just on three verses, verses 7, 8, and 9, which, which says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. It's important to keep ourselves from anger, for it will only hamper us. It is not a virtue. And if we are ruled by anger, then it is antithetical to the fruits of the Spirit, one of them in particular being self-control. Um, 
And of course, joy and, and, uh, and other ones. <laughs> now, one of the reasons Paul brings up anger in Ephesians 4 is it, because it can be one of those things uh, that gets in the way of the unity of the body of believers. Having anger and resenting one another is not going to promote the Christian unity that we are called to in Scripture. Uh, in Ephesians, Paul even adds a bit more to simply not uh, being angry and sinning. He includes that do not let the sun go down uh, on your anger. And his meaning of this is clear. Holding on, uh, holding on to anger for a long time is not good. If you become angry, it is best to release it, to even do what David describes, right? To, uh, to, to ponder in your heart and be silent. For when we remember that we ourselves are sinners and fall short of the glory of God, it brings us back into a proper understanding of who we are as people. We are sinners who desire God's grace and not his just uh, wrath. So just as we pray in the Lord's Prayer to forgive us our debts, as we forgive, have also forgiven our debtors, or similarly, in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, which teaches that God has forgiven to us a much greater debt in comparison to any offense that could be caused to us by man. Humble, let's, let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he will lift us up. The next verse we have, uh, verse 5, says, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. The next verse in this psalm has another exhortation from David. This is still part of the series of imperatives to his enemies. Uh, after basically telling them to repent uh, and to consider their ways, now here he is saying that there should also be a change in their actions. Um, see, real repentance should be tied with action. When we are saved, we can no longer go on living the way we were before. The Holy Spirit will be in us and will transform our lives to be more and more like Christ. But this verse also brings to mind the words of Christ in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 to 24, where it says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Again, we don't know who the people are exactly that are persecuting David in this particular time, but we could probably assume that they are Israelites, for they would know about the Lord. And here, David is challenging them that even if they believe that they are covenant people with God, and maybe are following some of the external principles of the law, that their sacrifices wouldn't be genuine, and their trust is not truly in the Lord. For it isn't actually a good thing for Old Testament Jews to offer sacrifices to God, and yet, during the rest of their lives, to live in rebellion to God. God cannot be fooled, as we learned about when we were going through Galatians uh, a while back, where it says in chapter 6, verse 7 to 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, if you think I forgot about Matthew 5 and why I brought it up, I did not. <laughs> the principle that we see from those verses is that having one aspect of our lives that is not covered, uh, sorry, that having sin in one aspect of our lives is not covered up by doing good things elsewhere. Uh, 
Is it wrong for us to do good things to the Lord? By no means. That's not what I'm saying. But we cannot disregard the commandments of God in one area of our lives uh, and hopefully make it up by following the commands of God in another area. For example, uh, a verse that I talked about when I preached from Genesis chapter 2, which is... uh, Uh, Husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman uh, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Uh, I didn't give the reference. Sorry, I think it's from uh, first or second Peter. Oh, shoot. That's okay. You can check it. uh, Check it later if you're interested. But um, even if a man is teaching the word, sharing the gospel with people, doing things that are considered good uh, by us, but he's neglecting what the word says about his household and his wife. Well, then, in reality, reality, that person is not being obedient to the Lord. So, David, again, is saying here to those who are persecuting him that they should repent from this endeavor and do what is proper by giving sacrifices to the Lord with a right conscience. Uh, In essence, he's saying to them, do what is proper, offer right sacrifices and trust the Lord. Or to put it another way, uh, I'd like to share with you a quote from Calvin about how he describes this verse. Let us learn from this passage that in contending with the corruptors of true religion, who may have the name of God continually in their mouth and vaunt themselves on account of their observance of his outward worship, we may safely rebuke their boasting because they do not offer the right sacrifices. But at the same time, we must, be, uh, we must beware lest a vain pretense of godliness foster in us a perverse and ill-founded confidence in place of true hope. So moving on to verse six then, um, which says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. So from decrying his enemies, David now turns his attention to another group of people. Now, most likely, these people are followers of David or maybe even David himself. Uh, The cry that is going up is a cry of deliverance. Save us from our present circumstances. Bring about your kingdom. It is the cry that all of us as believers share as well. The groaning that all creation has for the Lord, as we see. And again, another reference to Romans 8. I'm not going to read it, though. Uh, or also, uh, I would like to read, though, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 2 and verse 4, where it says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that that what is... M- so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We long for Christ's return and for our earthly bodies to be transformed and for the glory of the Father and his Son to be fully revealed. And I think it's fair to say that this, again, is a supplication to the Lord to help, uh, to, for, for, for help for David from his distress. The meaning of asking God to show his light uh, of his face is, is figurative language that we see all through, or not all, but we do see sometimes in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, if you look at the, the priestly blessing of Numbers 625 to make his face shine upon you, right? When the Lord shows his face to his people, it's, it's a sign of blessing and God's favor in that time. And also there's verses where God hides his face from his people. And the meaning of that is curses and judgment. Uh, if you read Genesis, or sorry, Deuteronomy, 
Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 20. So David, in this verse, uh, by, by saying, uh, who will show us something good, is the, is the cry of, of deliverance of, like, we are in a bad time, we need help. And, and this asking of, show your face, show the light of your face upon us, Lord, is David asking for God's favor in this time. So another uh, ask for supplication uh, or for aid. Now, the last two verses of this psalm, I would like to look at together because I think that they, uh, in some ways, complement one another. And so verse 7 says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And verse 8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, the safety... uh, Sorry. (laughs) Verse 7 starts with speaking about the joy... Uh, that fills David's heart, even in the midst of a distress, of distress, in a psalm that calls out to the Lord for aid, David still can say that he has joy from the Lord. Similar to Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7, which says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, David contrasts this joy given from the Lord with the earthly joys that come from the things upon the earth, but are in reality fleeting, right? For while wine and grain can be a temporary pleasure, uh, they may not be around always. And I would say, if we base our joy on things of the earth, uh, we are going to be sorely disappointed for uh, how could the creation ever match the creator? The next verse starts with David proclaiming the peace that is given to him from God, a peace, as we saw before, that surpasses our understanding, a peace that knowing people are most likely out there looking to kill you, that you can still sleep. David can say this only because he knows and trusts in the Lord. It's not a pride in his own abilities. It's not some false hope that things will hopefully work out in the end. It's trusting in the all-powerful God who loves his people and promises to save them, even if not physically in this world, then for himself in eternity. So what can we learn from this psalm? Well, directly, it is a psalm about supplication in a time of distress. It teaches us that we can call out to God for aid in our troubles and even teaches us how. For though men will always be sinful, the psalm makes some bold statements for God's relationship with his saints. He sets them apart. He hears their call. He will give them joy and peace in the midst of their struggles. So if you are struggling this day, my prayer for you is that this psalm will encourage you uh, and help you understand that God knows your struggles and he hears your prayers. Put your faith and trust in him. And even though they may not resolve immediately or even in the way that you would expect, know that God loves his saints because God is our righteousness. Uh, We are declared chassid the godly, uh, or the faithful. So rejoice, lie down and sleep, not in this moment, but later. (laughs) Sleep in peace, for it is God alone who makes us dwell in safety. Let me pray.
Dear Lord, I thank you for this day and that uh, we are able to to read through your word, uh, how even though, Lord, uh, this psalm was written so many years ago um, by by a man in a completely different context and and culture than ours, that you have uh, provided uh, application for us even today, Lord, that that your word uh, is uh, sufficient enough to make us wise to, to know about salvation, to know about you, Lord, uh, in order to, to live our lives uh, to, to the glory of you. And so I, I praise you and thank you for this word. And I do pray for, for any here, Lord, who are in a time of distress or troubles. Uh, I pray, Lord, that they would they would trust to call out to you, Lord. And, and even as we saw in Philippians, Lord, that they would uh, uh, give their prayers and their supplications to you, even with thanksgiving, even in the midst of, of their, their, their struggles and their, their uh, uh, tri- uh, trials, Lord. I pray that they would, they would recognize uh, that you are good, you are holy, and that you have probably delivered them from things in the past, Lord. And, and if, even if not physically, uh, from the, themselves, Lord, of our, of our sinfulness, of our sinful nature, our, yeah, our, our sinful uh, lives that we led before we came to faith. And so, so I pray, Lord, yeah, that we would, you would help us all be encouraged by your, your word today um, to, to turn even more to you, to have hearts set upon loving you always, Lord. And I even pray, uh, as we read in Ephesians, Lord, I pray for unity of the body, that, that we as, as your church uh, would not hold anger or resentment, especially among one another, Lord, that we would seek forgiveness and love and that we would uh, seek to build one another up and not tear each other down, Lord. For, for this is what you have called us to do in your scripture, uh, in your word. And we want to be faithful to you, Lord. And so I ask for, for all of us uh, to remember the state that we were in when you saved us, Lord. And to as we think about the great debt that we owed you, that you paid uh, f- uh, for us, Lord, by your son on the cross. I pray that as we, as we look at others and we, and we see even the minor offenses that we might receive, that, that we would recognize the difference of, of, of our great offense to you and their minor offenses to us, Lord. Uh, so I, I, I ask uh, for, for a spirit uh, for all of us, Lord, to, to love one another, to be unified, uh, and of course, to, to lift you up in our, in our times of, of distress. But even as well, Lord, to give thanks to you for, for times of peace that we have, uh, for times of joy, uh, even the, the joy of celebrating a, a new little one into our, our church family. Uh, we thank you so much, God, that, that you give us uh, blessed gifts all the time. And so help us to give thanksgiving to you uh, whenever we can, Lord. And whenever there are times where we need to uh, be with those who are mourning or in distress, Lord, help us also to, uh, to be wise in those situations and to, to always call upon you for we can trust that you hear us when we pray, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the Penners to come up and lead us in a song. Uh, and actually, our next song that we'll be doing will be from the, the psalm book, the psalm, singing psalm book. <laughs> so not from our normal hymnal. So.